0: Good morning. Now, while I get myself together, why don't you all open up to John chapter one?
1: As Pastor T shared, we are continuing, we're actually in the middle of a three part series on the topic of the incarnation, which If you have one of our church bulletins, you'll see that's the word that's on the front cover. And the incarnation is a fancy theological word that essentially describes God becoming man. And what it actually means literally is taking on flesh. And what we're going to look at today although we're in the middle of the series, is not something that requires having been here for the previous sermon. That was two weeks ago. So if you're joining us for the first time or weren't here the first time we introduced this topic, don't worry, you'll be all caught up because what we're gonna look at today in John chapter one is where we get this word from. It talks about the word becoming flesh, the word becoming flesh. So why don't we first... Read John chapter 1, verse 14, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump into it, okay?
0: John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh
1: and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as
0: the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we serve a God
1: who knows all about our troubles, who is empathetic to us and has come to be near us. God, we're grateful that we serve a God who is full of grace and truth. God, you are full of these things. You are full of compassionate mercy for your people. God, you are full of truth. You don't forsake your truth in order to be gracious, God, but through your son, Jesus Christ, God, you have brought both truth and grace to light on the cross. God, I need your help this morning. I need your help to proclaim your word. God, we all need your help to hear your word correctly. God, we need your grace. As we listen to the words of truth, we need your grace. Would you be gracious to us today, God?
0: Would you help us receive what you have for us? We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. Thank you for coming near to us in order that we might come near to you. Thank you for your son. In his name we pray, amen.
1: Okay. So, I think I can get through this. Um, We're in the season of Christmas, which is one of my favorite times of year. And one of the beautiful things about Christmas is that the focus on Christ is something that even those who may not intend to are often able to benefit from. Whether it's watching a movie that references Christ, that's talking about Christmas, or driving down the street and seeing a manger scene on the side of the road in someone's front yard. The Christmas season, at least in the U S is a time of year where more people than usual are at least thinking about Jesus, at least thinking about him. He at least crosses their mind at some point. And something that occurred to me as I was preparing for this sermon was that in the U S at least, The two main images that likely come to people's mind, Christian or not, when they think of Jesus is him in the manger as a young little infant baby child or him on the cross. And if you have to choose two images, when you think of Jesus, these are good images. These are actually fantastic images because you get a lot of theology in these images. In the manger, you see a God who is humble enough to come and be near his people. And then on the cross, you see a God who is loving enough to die for his people. At the same time, as great as these two images are, there's a reason why they're as as significant as they are. And that reason is because of who Christ is apart from these images. Because his birth and his death are merely the parenthesis on 33 years of life for a being who is actually eternal. And so when we're thinking about Christmas, when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about Christmas and when we're thinking about the incarnation, I think something that's helpful for us to bear in mind is that this is not actually the beginning of the story. And I'm convinced that that's why in John's gospel, which we're gonna read most of the first chapter of, I'm convinced that, or not most of the first chapter, but the first portion of the first chapter, I think that's why he starts his story the way that he does. John doesn't actually jump into the narrative of the life of Jesus. He doesn't jump into the three years of ministry where Jesus was teaching and preaching and calling people to follow him. He starts before that. And I think the reason he starts before that is because he wants us to know that Christ, the second person in the the Trinity, came before he came to earth. In fact, he was not created at all. He's eternal. And that's what I want to read for us. Um, What we will call in John's gospel the prologue. If you look ahead in verse 19, that's actually where the story starts. What we're going to read is all of the information that John wants us to know before the story starts. Does that make sense? Okay.
0: John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning,
1: who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's the word of the Lord.
0: And that's a dense
1: passage. We could easily spend the next 18 weeks looking at these 18 verses, one at a time, and still not exhaust everything that's there. But I have one sermon, and I'm not even going to attempt to exhaust everything that John is presenting. Instead, the outline and structure for my sermon is this. I'm going to present three questions. Then I'm going to provide three answers, and I'm going to explain those answers. So if you are taking notes, I'm gonna give question and answer, same time. Then I'm going to explain what that answer means. Then we're going to go on to the second question, provide the second answer. Okay. All right. So let me start off by just giving you all the questions, all the answers at the start. We'll just get that over with.
0: Okay. Cool. Question one. Who is the word? Answer one. The word is God. Question two. The word became flesh? Question mark.
1: Answer two yes, God became human. Question three, why did God become human? Answer three, because we need a specific savior. So I'll I'll repeat all of those as we go. And we'll start with question one. Who is the word? Answer, the word is God. And that answer is coming from verse one. It's the first thing that John lets us know. Let's look at verse one again. He says, in the beginning was the word. And we're trying to find out who who is this word? And he says, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And it's significant that he starts this way because it shows at the very outset that John is not trying to present merely a scholarly article about the deeds of a person named Jesus and leave it to the audience, what they'll make of that. John is making it clear here, and he later makes very clear in chapter 20 of his book, that he has a purpose for writing. He wants to convince us that Jesus is who Jesus said he was, and who Jesus said he was, was God. And so when we say, who is the word? And when we see as we're reading that the word is equating with Jesus, we're also seeing, according to John, that the word is God. But we're not only hearing that from John. Let me give you a quick survey of some of the things Jesus said about himself that clarify that Jesus also believed he was God. Throughout the gospel, Jesus makes many statements that make many people upset. These are some of them. I'm the bread of life chapter 6 i am the light of the world chapter 8 i am the door chapter 10 i am the good shepherd chapter 10 i am the resurrection and the life chapter 11 i am the way the truth and the life chapter 14 i am the true vine chapter 15 in chapter 8 again he says before abraham was i am calling on the covenant name of god for himself So Jesus states that he is God, and John states that he is God at the very outset. And it's significant that he does it at the outset, because once you start reading the story, you'll notice that Jesus is actually a little bit more subtle in his revelation of this. And that's because when Jesus came, he was on a mission that required a little bit of subtlety, a little bit of patience, good timing. He wanted to Patiently reveal who he was because once people found out, they decided to kill him. And he had some things that he needed to do before then. But at this point, when John is writing, Jesus has already died and he's already been raised from the dead. And so the story is spoiled. Jesus has won, and there's no need to keep what he had to say a secret. Jesus is God, the word is God. And John wants you to know that at the very beginning. And so he starts saying, this is a story about God. What you're about to read in my book is a story about God and what that God has done for you. Which is why he calls on this familiar language. Again, let's look at verse one. John says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. To a Jewish audience, starting with in the beginning would have been a, a trigger. And it would have been a very good trigger because Genesis 1 1, the first book of the Bible, and a book most Jews would have been very familiar with, begins with in the beginning. And John is using this familiarity like a catchy song lyric. He knows that if he starts with the right words, that will trigger in them a verse, and he knows the verse that they'll think of is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And with that familiarity, he's able to take all of that baggage, all of that good theological baggage from Genesis 1 and bring it all the way up and say, remember in the beginning, remember when God was creating, remember when God, who was uncreated himself, began. In the beginning, yes, was God.
0: And was the word. In the beginning was God and the Word. And I know
1: a lot of you are very familiar with this, but I, I, I'm harping on it because although it's a simple or rather familiar idea within Christendom, it, it's it's actually not simple. And there are many people who really wrestle with this. The idea that God is triune. Look, he's not only saying in the beginning was the word, but in the beginning, the word was with God. And so you have God, but then you have the word who is also God. And that can leave some people feeling confused. Like, so are there two gods? How does this work? Is the word God? How did God create? But then the word is creating. It requires some clarity. So I want to spend a little bit of time addressing at least two of the misconceptions um, that can arise from reading this. And the first of those, one of those things that we don't want to think in walking away from this is that God somehow functions in different modes. That's not what he's trying to get at. He's not trying to say that sometimes God is one way and other times he's another. He's saying that God is one, but he does exist differently than we exist. And you'll see later on John starts using other words to refer to the word. He calls him the son. He then goes on to call him Jesus, so we know exactly who he's talking about. And he refers to who he first calls God as father. And what he's trying to do is help us to understand that God is singular in his essence. There is truly only one God, but that God exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm not even going to try to make that make total sense to you, but it can make sufficient sense to us. We don't have to be able to grasp this perfectly in order for us to grasp it sufficiently. And one of the ways we grasp it sufficiently is by believing both of the things that we hear. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning was the word. And the word was alongside God, and he was God. He was the Son of God, and he was with his Father and with the Holy Spirit in the beginning. We don't have to grasp that perfectly to accept that as truth. The second misinterpretation that that we might arrive at is something that we we often hear from our Jehovah's Witness friends and, and family. And that's the belief that the Father created the Son and then the son created everything else and here's how they arrived there they they accept that okay in the beginning was the word and they accept that the word is the son they accept that the word and the son are jesus and they accept that they were with god but what they believe is that well obviously someone had to bring about the son in order for him to do anything but that's that's something that john is actually trying to rule out completely let's continue reading In verse 3, he says, all things were made through him, him being the word. And without the word was not anything made that was made. In the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the focus is that everything was made through the word. And when John says everything, he actually means everything. He means everything so much that he repeats himself. It can even be a little bit confusing when you're reading it. Look at verse three again. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Why does he repeat himself that way? He's doing it because he wants to clarify all things were made through the word. Not everything except one thing And we know that because he says, without him was not anything made that was made. And so if the father created the son, but nothing can be created without the son, how could creation happen if the son is not present? That's what John is trying to help us to see. And that's why he's bringing that baggage from Genesis to show, no, when I say the beginning, I want you to think of God the only God, the eternal God, that is who the word is. And so with that, he moves forward, with establishing that the word is God. The word did create everything,
0: and without him, nothing was created that was created. And so in accepting that, we can move forward. The word was with God,
1: meaning that God is inherently relational. The word was not made, meaning that the language of son and father do not imply a difference in age somehow. They're merely referring to the relationship. Their relationship is not like me and my father, where I came after him. It's merely talking about there is a close, intimate relationship. Finally, the word is God, meaning that he shares the exact attributes of God. And we can start thinking, okay, if the word is God, and I accept that he is truly God, he is
0: truly the one God. What are some things that we already know about the one God? Well, for one, we know he's holy. And so the word is holy.
1: We know that the one God is eternal, and so the word is eternal. We know that the one God was already present at the beginning, and so the word was already present at the beginning. Meaning that when we're thinking about Christmas and when we're looking at the child in the manger celebrating the birth of Christ, we're not actually celebrating a beginning of something, we're celebrating an entrance of God. Into humanity. This is not the start of the story. What we're going to celebrate in seven days, those of us who are celebrating Christmas, is not the beginning of the Son of God. It's the beginning of his work on earth in human flesh, which is why we read in verse four that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Or, sorry, um, verse four, I was reading verse six. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just as God is eternal, God is also life and light. And it's that light, that life that was coming into the world, It's coming into the world. Which brings us to question number two. The word became flesh? Question mark? The answer: Yes, God became human. As we've already seen, the author repeats himself when he's trying to emphasize a point, just like he did when he was talking about how the word created all things. He also repeats himself when he wants to clarify that God was actually coming into the world. He was coming into the world. Here's what I mean. If we jump down to verse nine, we're gonna read nine through 14. Verse nine, it says, the true light Look again at what he says in verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In both cases, he's communicating the same idea. Light coming into the world, the word becoming flesh, are both images he's painting to communicate that God is becoming human. The word is God. God is light. The word became flesh. The light was coming into the world. God was coming into the world. God was becoming human. That's what it means when he says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It means that the word, who is God, came as a human who was really human. He wasn't pretending to be human. He wasn't simply taking on the image of a human. He became a human. He was born. He was a child. He grew up and he dwelt among his people. And so the word becoming flesh is saying that the invisible God became a visible human. And that's amazing. The invisible God, whom no one has ever seen, has become visible. And he hasn't become visible as a pillar of fire or as a glowing
0: being. He's become visible as someone who looks like you and me, as a human, and it doesn't stop there. Because if this God came into the world, which he
1: created, what would it make sense to expect? If you don't know the story, the God who created the world, who we all have to thank for our lives, is coming into the world. This is the best guest you could ever have. We would welcome him with open arms. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for making our world. Thank you for making our universe. Thank you for making all of our favorite things, for making all of our favorite people. Thank you for creating joy. Thank you for creating creativity. Thank you for creating. God, welcome. It is good to have you here.
0: We're Israelites. We've been anticipating you. That's what you would expect. But that's not what happens. Let's read again. Verse 9. The true light, who is
1: God, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did
0: not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's bizarre. I mean, don't let the
1: familiarity of the story in the Bible distract you from how bizarre what happens in the Bible is, especially with what John is saying here, his own people. When he says his own people, he means the Jewish people, the people who all these other pages are about. They've been waiting for this to happen. They were warned, hey, the Messiah is coming. Anticipate him. And they were anticipating him. But when he came, they didn't recognize him. When he came, they rejected him. And so when the invisible God became a visible human, he was
0: rejected by the very people who ought to have been welcoming him. And he allowed it to happen. Whereas prior
1: to becoming human, he was eternally glorified. He became human and was humiliated. Whereas prior to becoming human, he was indestructible. He's God. He's invisible, all-powerful. He came and allowed himself to be subject to death. Why did he do that? These are the types of questions we're intended to ask ourselves when we read about what's happening. Why would God allow these things to happen? Why would he choose to come into a world that was created by him and full of people who rejected him? It's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be something that solicits a response of, that's
0: not right. This is not what should happen. And that's true. It's not right not what should happen. But one warning for us,
1: we shouldn't look at who's described as the people who rejected him
0: and think we wouldn't have been among them. That's something we shouldn't think. Because we can acknowledge that, yes, God
1: is worthy. He was worthy of their praise, but he's also worthy of our praise. And as shocking as it is that when God came to the earth, people rejected him. Isn't it also shocking that we reject him? Is what he's done for us
0: any less amazing than what he has done for these people? It's not. That should also be shocking.
1: But the reason it's happened is because of the reality of sin. And that's something I want to talk about for a second. Because again, As I stated before, John is using, in verse 1, in the beginning intentionally. He wants to take on some of the theology that's coming from Genesis chapter 1, where we first hear the words in the beginning. And shortly after Genesis 1,
0: we have Genesis 3, where sin enters the world. And it enters the world through Adam and Eve,
1: two people who walked with God. Two people who knew God. Two people who ought to have received
0: God's goodness with joy. But instead, they rejected him. They rejected his authority. They decided
1: he wasn't trustworthy. And so instead of accepting his authority, they assumed authority for themselves. And they made decisions about what is good and evil for themselves. And as a consequence of their sin, we have inherited a sinful nature. Like Adam and Eve and like these people, we have knowledge of God that we turn away from. Romans chapter 2 talks about this. It talks about how we have a knowledge of God that we've rejected, that we pushed out of our minds in order to take authority for ourselves. We are rebellious people. And what we're reading about is God coming into a world of rebellious people. But he doesn't leave us in the same nature that he brought, that he came to us in. Because although when we're looking in verse 10 and 11, he came to people who ought to have known him but rejected him, he came to his own people and even they rejected him. Look at his response, starting in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood,
0: nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Why does he do that? It's shocking that he comes into
1: a world that rejects him. It's also shocking that he responds to
0: rebellion with grace. That's also supposed to be shocking. We're supposed to hear that and say, well, these people don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. But it's what God provides. It's what God provides.
1: Even though these people and we ourselves have responded to Him with rebellion, God holds out grace and mercy. He holds out grace and mercy to undeserving sinners, to undeserving sinners who've decided for themselves that they don't want him. This God, who is God, has drawn near to people who have already communicated that they don't want him. That is amazing. That is something that we are celebrating when we're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating God entering the world and saying, even though you flee from me, I will come near to you. Even though you don't want me, I will give you an opportunity to change your mind, to repent. In fact, I will give you the power to change your mind because you can't even do that without my help. But how does he achieve this? Because this isn't a story that is merely built on sentiment. Adam and Eve's sin deserved punishment. And they received it. They were cast out of God's presence and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and they were sentenced to death.
0: Our sins also have a consequence. And God hasn't simply said, you know what, forget about it.
1: Your rebellion to me makes no difference. It does make a difference.
0: It does. Your rebellion matters to God. And Jesus provided a way for you to escape the judgment that you are due.
1: Were God to send all of us to eternal judgment, He would be just. We could not call Him mean or evil or wicked.
0: We we couldn't even call Him unforgiving. He's not obligated to forgive, He was not obligated to come. All
1: of this He has done because of His own generous mercy and grace. Which brings us to question number three. Why did God become human? And the answer is because we need a specific Savior. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time thinking about. We need a specific Savior. Apart from God, we are dead and blind. Hopefully, I don't have to convince you that we live in a wicked world, And hopefully I don't have to convince you that you have a wicked heart apart from Christ. Think of some of the thoughts you've had today. Do I need to convince you that we are in need of salvation? And because we are in need of salvation, we need a Savior who is capable of redeeming us. And there are two things, at least, two things that we need that John talks about. The first is we need a savior who dwells with us. The second thing is we need a savior who dies for us. And so we're going to spend the rest of the time thinking about these two ideas, a savior that dwells with us and a savior who has died for us. Again, we're jumping back in to John chapter one, starting in verse 14. We're going to look at where these two ideas are present. Verse 14 reads, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us.
0: And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the singing
1: team has done a little bit of my work for me in their song selections. We've actually heard about how God has come to dwell with us and how he has died for us in the songs we've been singing. And so that is extremely helpful. I'm actually going to refer back to one of the scriptures that was read earlier this morning to help clarify that. But the first thing we're going to talk about is a God who dwells with us. In God becoming human, he has not only taken on the appearance and the body of a human, he's also taken on the burdens of a human. The salvation that Jesus lays out for us is a salvation that comes with a covenant. You see the language that he's using in verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus gives us the opportunity to become like him, in a sense, children of God by becoming like us. And in becoming like us, he becomes our substitute. He becomes our substitute because our problem, which is sin, he assumes. He assumes our sin, and with the sin, he assumes responsibility for the punishment that that sin is due. We need a Savior who's capable of doing that. And a Savior who is only God in nature cannot take on sin because God is wholly absent from sin. And so it necessitated a human Savior, one who dwells with us, and that's who Jesus is. He's a savior who came to dwell with us by becoming human. On the other hand, we need a savior who dies for us. And you don't see that here. Just want to acknowledge that. John at this point does not talk about Jesus' death. But I do think he's hinting at his death when he says at the end of verse 14 that the son from the father was full of grace and truth. I think he's hinting at Jesus's death because it's at the cross where Jesus died that you see both grace and truth present at the same time. And how do you see that? Well, as for grace, you weren't on the cross. You weren't paying for the sins. Christ on the cross assumed sin for himself. And when he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. Meaning it is paid for. Meaning. If this applies to you, your debt is paid. That is grace. You need a savior who's capable of doing that. But again, he's full of grace and truth. He hasn't forsaken the truth to give the grace. This grace is not free in the sense of unpaid for. The grace is free in that we haven't paid for it which is why in being full of grace and truth, Christ was truly our
0: substitute. He doesn't forsake the truth, and the truth is that sin needs to be paid for, and he paid for it.
1: Christ on the cross extends both grace to us and accepts the truth of the punishment of sin and the wrath of God for himself. He is a very specific Savior. He is human, and so he's capable of doing this. He's capable of being associated with sin. But in case you didn't know, humans can't hold the wrath of God and come back from it. And so our specific Savior had to be not only human and a perfect human at that. He also had to be the eternal God who's capable of accepting eternal punishment, dying, and by his own power, raising from the dead because it would serve us no good if he simply died. But Christ rose. After dying, his own power, being God, he rose from the dead, meaning that we too had the hope of resurrection. When we see him die for the penalty of sin and be buried, and three days later, rising from the dead, what we see is an image of what we are able to participate in. And being united with him through his work on the cross, we are able
0: to suffer death through him and then be raised like him. And actually, let me let me continue. <laughs> Sorry. After that, we just finished in verse 14, it goes on to say in parentheses that John
1: bore witness about him and just as an aside this is talking about John the Baptist not the author but John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God the only god was at the Father's side. He has made him known. As I begin to wrap up, one of the things that has come to my mind as I was reflecting on the scripture and preparing the sermon is a quote that I read years ago by an author named A.W. Tozer. And he says that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll read it again. He says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason he gives in the book where he's writing that is because the thoughts we have about God lead to our actions in relation to God. Just like we were talking about with Adam and Eve, they thought after the serpent planted the idea, maybe God is not trustworthy. Maybe he's not good. And If that's true, we have no reason to trust his promises. I mean, if he's not trustworthy, it only makes sense that we not trust his promises. If he's not good, it only makes sense that we seek good for ourselves. And to some degree, we are all doing that same thing. We're having thoughts about God that are dictating our actions in relationship to God. And A.W. Tozer wants to remind us that those thoughts that we have about God are the most important things about our lives because they dictate the trajectory of our lives. They dictate our actions. They dictate how we will come to God. They dictate if we will come to God. Because remember, Adam and Eve were not atheists. They believed that God was real. They just believed wrong things about him.
0: And as a result of believing those wrong things, they sinned against him and we suffer from the same thing.
1: I've been suffering from the same thing. It has been very hard for me to believe some things that God has promised. And it shows in my actions, shows in my lack of prayer, shows in my lack of going to God for peace and comfort. It shows in the things I choose to turn to to gain
0: peace and comfort. The thoughts I have about God Dictate my life. Can you relate to that?
1: That's one of the reasons we spend the time that we do each Sunday hearing from God's word. Theology, the the term theology, refers to knowledge of God. And we spend time studying the scripture, preaching the scripture, in order to clarify and correct our thoughts about God, not all of which are wrong. Not all of which are wrong. We have very good thoughts about God, but even saved folks have things that need to be corrected, things that need to be changed, things that are in need of repentance. Now I'd ask you, take a moment to think about your life. If the thoughts themselves aren't coming to mind quick enough, of what's the wrong thought I have about God, think about parts of your life that you know God is likely not satisfied with. What thought has led you to do that. What thought has made sin seem like the right, appropriate thing to do? Because that's why we sin. We sin because we think it's appropriate, at least in the moment, to do that very thing. And that comes from thoughts about God that are not true. That comes from thoughts about God that are not true. And it's not always sufficient to simply know that they're not true or to say we know that they're not true. It helps for us to, one, hear it, to rehearse it, to spend time listening to the word, reading the word. But it's also why we meditate on the word. I know God is trustworthy. I know that if I pray, God will meet me there and provide the comfort that I want. I know that God is present in suffering. I know that God cares about me. I know that God is with me. I know that God cares about how I feel. I know that God doesn't mind if I cry. I know that God is always present, that he still dwells with me. I know that God, Jesus, is still a human, is still familiar with my sufferings, still knows what it is to be a finite person who is easily overwhelmed. I know these things, but I don't act on these things. And I don't act on these things because simply having the knowledge in my head does not mean it's the thought that I believe. There's a difference between knowing something and being able to preach that thing and actually believing the thing enough to live that way. We need a Savior who is able to redeem us from All aspects of our sin, who is able to go to the cross and extend us grace, but does not forsake truth, who tells us, you need to repent. Yes, I've saved you. Yes, it does not require any work of your own. But I'm inviting you to be a child of God. I want you to trust and believe the God who you are a child of.
0: That's what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And so whether you're an unbeliever
1: who's just starting to learn, starting to ask questions about God, I want to encourage you, ask questions, ask questions. There there are good reasons to have questions about Christianity. We believe some wild stuff,
0: but I also want to encourage those who are believers or say they're believers, ask questions. Bring
1: up the questions that you know are there that you feel like I ought to know this, and so maybe I should just not. We serve a Savior who is full of grace and truth. Again, that's what we're reading about. If we pick up again, starting in verse 16, it says, And from His fullness, His being the Word, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. What he's communicating, if we're to apply um, the quote I, I shared earlier, that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What he's saying is that if you want to know about God, if you want to have right thoughts about God, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. If you want to think correctly about God, the law came through Moses, and that law came from God. But if your main thought about God is that He is simply a lawgiver, checking off your do's and don'ts, assessing you, to a degree that's true. But that's not the perfect image of God. The perfect image of God is shared through Jesus, who brings that truth that the law is good and profitable, but who also shows that I'm with you. I'm not distant watching you fail to obey my law. I've come to draw near to you. I'm here and present with you in your suffering and in your weakness. That is the image of God. That is the perfect image of God. No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. And we have an opportunity to get to know that Christ through his word. And he's told us that he will not leave us. He continues to dwell with us. He will not forsake us. He understands that we are weak and continue to be in need of a savior. And he wants to be that savior for us. And so when, when we talk about Christ, when we celebrate Christmas, we're, we're not presenting merely a good option among a myriad of options, we're saying that Christ is the only option if you want to know God. We're saying that if you want joy that is everlasting, there's only Christ. If you want love that does not fail, there's only Christ. If you want salvation and forgiveness of your sins, there's only Christ, because only Christ is God and human. He is the only one who took on flesh and therefore took on human problems. He's the only one who, as God, became man in order that he could die for people, in order to raise for people and join them with him. The only option we have is Christ. He is the only way. That's why he called himself the way. He is the only light. That's why he called himself the light. And he is the only savior. And that's why John begins his gospel by clarifying that who we're about to read about, if you were to read his book, is God. He is the unique God. And he has come to offer salvation and forgiveness to all who believe in his name. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Um,
0: transition. That's my prayer for this morning. <laughs> um, God is good. Despite any weaknesses I have, (laughs) despite any weaknesses you have, God is good. And he has come.
1: Again, on Christmas Day, we celebrate his coming. I hope you're able to celebrate his coming today so that if you don't know him, you would accept him today. And if you do know him, you would recommit yourself to clarifying who he is today. Christ came to dwell with us because he loves us and he offers salvation to us
0: free of charge because he paid for it. So let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, Christ, we are grateful for your provision. Jesus, you did not have to come
1: Certainly it seems confusing why you would choose to come,
0: but praise be to your word for telling us that you so love us and you chose to come. God thank you for. Thank you for humbling yourself. Thank you, thank you for coming to be with the rebellious people. In not responding in kind. God, thank you for offering the free gift of grace. Thank
1: you for remaining true to who you are by upholding the truth. God, you did not overreact in coming to earth to die for us. If there was another way, I'm sure you would have gone that way, God, but we in our sin are so lost and so depraved Only the death of God could save us. And so that's what you provided. You provided the perfect sacrifice. God, I pray that this morning, those who don't know you would hear about Jesus and consider him worthy of praise. God, that they would repent, that they would ask those questions that they have with the real desire to know and to learn about Christ. And I pray that those of us who are already following you, God, would continue to repent. God, would continue to turn our gaze to you and to consider what fullness of grace upon grace am I missing out on because I have not believed this or that about you. God, help us as we struggle with all sorts of trials to remember that you are the God who has come near to us have not forgotten us. God, that as we celebrate great victories and, and have rewards, God, to, to not forget that this life is temporary. And you've come to make us children of an everlasting kingdom, of an everlasting king. God, you are truly the one who has come to be Emmanuel, God, with us. And we're grateful, God, that you, um, despite our weaknesses, and even because of our weaknesses, have chosen to come near to us. God, we don't deserve it, um, but we appreciate it. and We ask you to help us appreciate it all the more.
0: In Christ's name we pray. Amen.